If you like listening to Warriors in Their Own Words, check out our other show, the Medal of Honor podcast. The link is in the show description. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words. In partnership with The Honor Project, we've brought this podcast back at a time when our nation needs these stories more than ever. Warriors in Their Own Words is our attempt to present an unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. Thank you for listening, and by doing so, honoring those who have served. Today, we'll hear from Private First Class Walter Stitt. Stitt fought in the invasion of Normandy and the Battle of the Bulge as a tank gunner. When I got into uh, combat, I was 19. In July of that year, then, I became 20. I came to uh, France as a replacement. And uh, the first sergeant in E Company uh, came down to the motor pool, or to, to the uh, replacement pool, and uh, got my records and saw I was a tank gunner, which I guess he needed. And so he came over and interviewed me and said, okay, you're going to be an E Company of the 33rd Armored Regiment. And so then I followed along behind the 3rd Armored for a week or so, maybe a little longer. And then uh, when they needed a replacement, my, he came and got me. When I went in the tank, I didn't go in as a gunner immediately. I went in as a loader. And so uh, a loader's kind of off at the side of the gun and uh, he isn't looking outside during combat. He's just taking orders to put in this kind of uh, ammunition and, uh, and see that there's ammunition for the machine gun and that sort of thing. Uh, so I, I, I really wasn't looking much at what we were shooting at. I could guess because they were telling me to put armor piercing or to put high explosive. So you knew kind of what they were shooting at, but you never really looked at it. If, it, if things calmed down, then you could get your periscope and look and see what was around. It was always noisy, and uh, the motors were going. The driver usually had the motor revved up good, so if he had to move in a hurry, he was ready to let out the clutch and go. Um, after a while, you got used to the sounds of the guns banging and, and going off. The uh, tank that I was in, the first tank that I was in, had a, an airplane engine, and right behind the turret was an uh, oil cooler. So that uh, whenever the motor was running, you had this big fan back there sucking air into the tank to, to blow through that oil cooler. So it was good and noisy and cramped and cold in the winter and hot in the summer. And you banged around inside the tank when it was moving. And uh, it wasn't a very comfortable place, no. And you lived in the tank. And you uh, usually you were close enough that if you messed around too much outside, you were going to get shot. So you stayed in the tank if you were... Uh, anyways, near the enemy. So you ate your meals in the tank and lived in the tank, slept in the tank. We got along well, I thought. We we really never had too much fighting among ourselves or arguing among ourselves. It was more we were all young kids, you know, and we all told stories and added our lives one on top of the other. But uh, uh, you tried to tell things that were funny and laugh and in fact, uh, one time in Stolberg, which I'm sure you've heard a lot of with your interviews, they, uh, we sat in a tank for a week, 
And one night, just after dark, we heard this banging on the back of the tank. And here was a platoon leader said, they can hear you guys laughing all the way to Berlin. But uh, we weren't being shot at. We weren't worried about that. So we we just uh, got our stories going with each other. But we usually got along well. I, uh, my, when I started out as a loader, my, the first gunner that I had to answer to, uh, I didn't like the way he set the headspace on the machine gun. And, uh, so the day that, uh, that he was killed, we had three what they call ruptured cartridges. So he had to take the gun apart and pull the cartridge out of the thing and then load it up with bullets again. And I kept trying to set the headspace differently, and he kept screaming at me to do it his way. And so every time I did his way, well, we got another ruptured cartridge. But ordinarily, there wasn't any any arguments among us. We got along well. Oh, yeah, you had to trust each other, you know, that each guy was going to do his job and do it well. When I got to be a gunner, the tank commander uh, told me what the ranges were, what my target was, you know, that sort of thing. I, I was really dependent on him because I didn't have much... Uh, I, if it was needed to sh- fire through the telescope, uh, there wasn't much I could see. And then we all wore earphones because of the noise that we talked about a minute ago. So everybody's working together to do what needed to be done. I, in that first tank, it was a loader. And um, the loader sits on the left-hand side. He doesn't have a hatch to get out of. And uh, the uh, we'd been working out all day firing. Now, I... Some of the targets I probably looked at, but most of them I didn't. I just sat there, and when they asked for an armor-piercing shell, I threw an armor-piercing shell. And when we ran out of machine gun bullets, I put in another tape of machine gun bullets. When the when the when the uh, barrel got too hot on the machine gun, I took it out and got another one to put in. The bow gunner or the assistant driver was the one that had the the cool barrels that we put in. And uh, so you're busy all the time. And uh, you're sitting on a little round chair. You once in a while, you get a little rest and lean back against the tank. You had all the shells that you'd fired, the, the, what was left after they fired. You had a little window there, and you'd take and throw those out when you got a few minutes. So you were busy most of the time. You'd, and then, of course, we all smoked then. So if you got a chance, you, you lit up a cigarette too. But uh, then uh, I've been doing this right along. And then all of a sudden, a uh, lieutenant came over and ordered the tank commander to get out of the tank, said he was going to take over. And uh, found out later the lieutenant had already lost two tanks that day, and this was his third tank. And so he got in, and we were sitting still, and uh, all of a sudden the platoon sergeant started yelling over the phone, said, Lieutenant, they're shooting at you. Back up. Back up. And uh, so when he did, I turned my periscope around and looked, and just as he did, I saw a fireball go by. And uh, then the, the sergeant got on him again and said, Lieutenant, back up, back up. And, uh, and I looked, and he, he just was paralyzed. And he reached over, and he grabbed his mic button and pushed the button and said, Driver, back up. Bang, just like that was hit, and the shell hit right in front of the gunner and killed the gunner and the tank commander both. The tank, of course, leaps up in the air, gets black for a minute. Uh, it rattles your brains, you know, just you're just kind of stunned for a minute. And then I said, well, to myself were hit. And I look, and of course, and for me to get out from where I am, I have to get underneath the cannon and, uh, and out between these two people. And when I looked, the gunner had fallen back and the tank commander had fallen on top of him. And I reached up, clear up into the guy's guts, trying to pull them apart. And I couldn't get them. They were just wedged. <clears throat> so I dropped back down 
on the floor and looked, and I saw daylight where the the uh, driver had gotten out. So I dove out of the turret into the driver's seat, dove out over the side of the tank, and just as I did, uh, the tank got hit again. And then that time it exploded because they hit gas or ammunition or whatever. And I hit on the ground, and I held, caught myself this way because I went first, and I had a shoulder that kept coming out of joint. <clears throat> and I jumped up, pulled the shoulder back in joint. Oh, hurt. And I started to run, and I snagged my foot on a piece of barbed wire fence and went down again. And of course, I caught myself, knocked the shoulder out of joint, pulled it back up again. I found a foxhole that wasn't very deep and got into that, and then I realized I was wounded So I, because the, the gun had turned the shrapnel down. And I got it in the legs. It was not serious wounds, but a lot of scratches. And so I went up to a light tank that was there and said, hand me a bandage. And the guy said, come up and get it. So I climbed up the side of the tank and the guy reached the bandage out to me. And as I'm climbing up and getting back down, all of a sudden there's a splatter of bullets go up the side of the tank. And I realized some German was shooting at me with what they called a burp gun. It has a real funny burp, burp, burp. So I looked around, and here's this German underneath a bunch of bushes down there with his gun. And I yelled up to the light tank commander, and I said, that guy that's got that burp gun's under those bushes. And he swung that little 37 around like that, and kaboom, and that took care of that one. Well, then the medics came by. I got back in the foxhole. The medics came by and said, can you walk? And I said, yes. And they said, run back through that hedge. So I did, and they took me on back to, to an evacuation station. And uh, patched up my leg, gave me that traditional tetanus shot that I had to have. And uh, I laid down, took it easy for that evening. And the next morning, I went back to my company. The first sergeant asked me what I was doing there. And I told him my tank had been hit. And he said, was anybody killed? And I told him, yes, the gunner, whose name was Reavy, had been killed. And the tank commander and the first sergeant got tears in his eyes because he and Reavy had been buddies. They were old army. And they'd been boxing buddies, you know, and they for a long time. So he said, Walter, you just take it easy. And I said, okay. So I found a nice soft spot to lie down and take it easy. And about 15 minutes later, he's there and said, Walter, he said, I hate to ask you, but we need another tank. He said, could you go back to ordinance and I'll give you a, uh, you can be the tank commander. And I'll give you a driver and bring one up. So we went back and brought it up. And when I got back up to the company area again, I said, oh, Walter, I hate to say this, but he said, they really need another tank. And so it was the next day and I'm right back up again. Only this time he said I was to go up as a gunner. And so then I, I went as a gunner. Well, by then I began to see, you know, I, I, you see other tanks that have been knocked out and, and you hear stories from other tank crews have been shot out of tanks. And, we, and, and then the officers and the, particularly the platoon sergeant, people who had been in combat for a while, began to lay more of it on you, how you were going to survive in this war. Uh, with these tanks that couldn't come face-to-face -face with a German tank at all. But the the real strategy was to get around the side of them. So if you came up face-on to a German tank, some of the crews would fire smoke shells right away and see if they could fog it up for them so they couldn't see you. Uh, sometimes if they're close enough, they would shoot a, a phosphorus, white phosphorus shell, a high-explosive shell. And if some of that got in, sometimes the German crews would abandon the tank. But the best thing to do was to have somebody here firing at the tank, and the German turrets wouldn't traverse all the way, so they had to turn the tank to take another shot if it's over on the side. So when they turned the tank, then somebody would come up on this side, and the idea was to keep working up on them until somebody got a good shot that, that did them in. But if you shot right at them, uh, oftentimes you could just see the shell just bounce right off. 
The uh, the difference was that our tank, the muzzle velocity in our tank was something like 2,700 feet per second, where theirs was like 3,900 feet per second. And uh, so our shell had an arch to it where theirs just went straight and uh, they could penetrate our armor with no trouble at all, where most of our shots head on at least would bank off. You don't want to look like a coward. <laughs> you're scared to death, but you're not going to, not going to back off and say, Oh, I'm not going to go. Uh, there were people that shot themselves in the foot, you know, to keep from doing that. But there was that, it, it got built into you, you know, that this is what you were going to do and you're going to see it through one way or another. And so I got back into another tank and, uh, we lasted another, uh, couple of months. And then, uh, we stopped for, oh, almost a month. And then around the 1st of November, we were ready to jump off again. And they had big orientations, told us what everybody was going to do. And uh, a German officer had defected. And uh, he said, now, when you go down through this field, there's a minefield there. And he said, they've laid it out with wire so that it looks like little garden patches. And then there'll be a path and then another little garden patch. He said, uh, run over the wires because he said there are no mines in there. He said the mines are all in the path. So that morning when we started out and going down through this field and I'm watching where the tank commander's directing the driver and he started lining up on the path. And so I grabbed my mic and I said to the tank commander, I said, that German officer said that uh, we should run over the wires. And he screamed back at me and said, I'm the tank commander. And I said, okay. So we went right into the path and got into it a little ways, and all of a sudden, boom. And the thing just reared up in the air, and it took all the track and wheels off of one side of the tank. Um, nobody was hurt, just stunned for a minute. And, of course, we weren't going to be able to fight after that. There's another story that's not particularly related to tanks that goes with that. But they told you over and over again in basic training and, and later on, that when the tank got into a minefield, if you got into a minefield, to get out of the back of the tank and walk back the tracks because you'd already been there. But my tank driver jumped out right out the front. He was scared and <clears throat> dropped right down beside the front wheel. And I came around the back and looked to see where he was. When I saw him, I said, whatever you do, don't move. He said, what's, what's, what's the matter? I said, look down by your foot. And here's this prong sticking up. He just missed what they called a bouncing Betsy. It'll jump up about three feet and then explode. And the Germans filled it with glass and any kind of scrap metal they could find. So it just would really tear you up with all the small scrap if you got hit. So I told him, get up on the tank. And he did. He climbed back along the side of the tank, got in the tracks and took off. That was my second tank. Later on, since I didn't have a tank, I walked around the next day or so up this hill. And uh, our artillery had killed a lot of German soldiers up on that hill when we got ready to jump off. And I went up and there was an anti-tank gun on the hill and I got down and looked through the sights and it was laid right on my tank. If they hadn't killed those people up there, they'd have gotten my tank from the side. Then the third tank that I lost, uh, this was back during the bulge. And uh, when we started out that morning, uh, we had a crew of infantry, uh, a squad of infantry. And they had only one of them that ever been in combat before, and that was a platoon sergeant, and just got started that morning, and he got hit. So we had eight kids, six or eight kids, uh, walking along with the tank who had never been in combat. And all of a sudden, we're into this town, and they're getting lots of small arms fire, rifle fire, machine gun fire. So they get behind the tank, and I don't blame them a bit because they were out in the open otherwise. 
And then uh, we got into town, and uh, a couple of them get out on the side of the tank. And we're walking along, and all of a sudden, a German stood up with one of the Panzerfaust, the bazooka, and uh, took a shot at me. And uh, he missed the tank, but uh, when it exploded, it got some of the inf- some of these infantrymen. And instead of shooting him, they stood there and hollered, "There he is! There he is!" And so my tank commander gave me orders, and I started traversing the gun. I just got sight of the guy into my uh, periscope before I could fire. Uh, he stood up and fired the second one, and it lobbed in and hit on the top of the tank, uh, killed the tank commander instantly. And uh, he had his hands up like this, and when it, when it hit him and killed him, he smacked his hands down like this, hit me in the middle of the back, drove me into the metal, and uh, knocked the wind out of me. So I didn't know whether I was really hurt or not for a minute there. And then he fell on my back and then slumped down onto the floor. So without him, we bailed out of the tank. And uh, there was a building there. And we went in there and took these infantrymen in there, too, and patched each other up, the ones who were wounded. I got hit in the head because the Lord knew where I could take the biggest hit and not hurt anything. And then uh, I went on back. And that was my last day in combat. I... uh, Went back to a aid station and from there back to a field hospital. And they took the shrapnel out of my head. Uh, they sent me back up to the company, but I got sick. <clears throat> they sent me back to the hospital again. And when I got to the hospital, why, they sent me back to the next hospital. And next thing you know, I ended up in England on limited service. And that's part of it was because I had the shoulder that kept coming out of joint. And they sent me to the Air Force where I had no skills at all and uh, tried to get me to load bombs. But I couldn't even climb up in a plane because... When I pushed myself up in the plane, my shoulder came out of joint. So they finally sent me to work in the PX, and somebody had to do it. And then when the war was over, they they sent me over to manage the enlisted men's beer hall. Terrible duty for a preacher. Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today. Hello, my name is Peter Zablocki, and I'm a historian, author, and college professor. I'm thrilled to invite you to check out Evergreen Network's History Shorts Podcast. Every Tuesday and Thursday, join me on a journey through time, exploring the little-known and hidden gems of history. In each bite-sized episode, I'll dive into my original research to bring you intriguing historical curiosities you've probably never heard of, uncovering the fascinating stories that have shaped our world, from forgotten figures to overlooked events. And the best part? I've condensed all this historical goodness into manageable chunks, perfect for your on-the-go lifestyle. Whether you're commuting to work or squeezing in a quick break, History Shorts fits into the little time you probably think you don't have. Subscribe now and never miss an episode of the History Shorts podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts. 
Well, that first lieutenant, uh, as I said, he just, he was, what I guess you call shell-shocked. I mean, he just, uh, he saw death coming at him or something, and he just couldn't do anything. But uh, I, I never faulted the leadership. I thought they were, knew what they were doing. Uh, I had a platoon leader later that I particularly liked and got to be good friends with after the war, uh, who was a real go-getter. Uh, our, we had a company commander who was wounded several times and eventually got killed. Uh, we lost a lot of, of lieutenants. Most of them were very capable. We only had one that I thought lacked some of that. You keep wondering, you know, how much longer it can go on, or am I going to get it tomorrow, or, you know, what's what's going to happen? Uh, everybody was frightened. Everybody was scared. But you, get hit, you went ahead and did what you had to do. The thing I think that made it for us was that we had good training, uh, basic training and advanced training. And we went over these things until we moaned and groaned about, you know, why are we doing this again? But then when the time came that you needed to do something, you were trained to do it. And you just did it automatically. And I, I think that helped. The hardest thing I had to do, if I can throw this in, was to shoot somebody. You know, that's just entirely foreign to the way you've been raised, is to shoot and kill somebody. And so the first few times you step on that trigger, knowing that you're really trying to kill somebody, it was really difficult. And uh, fortunately, in a tank, a lot of your shots were just, you, you shot at somebody you couldn't see. But there were other occasions when you could. And uh, and I had one occasion when we sat for hours and uh, during the bulge and just shot men coming out of the woods and just sprayed them with machine guns. And it's hard to do. But you, after you've been in combat for a while, you see, you see other men killed. Uh, it, you begin to get the feeling it's going to be me or them. And if it's got to be that way, it's going to be them and not me. And uh, one of the men that you interviewed, Oreo Piro, uh, a heck of a nice guy. He and I, he was in a light tank and I was in a medium. And our two tanks were side by side. This is during the bulge. And, uh, and I told you, we, shot these fellows with machine guns and he of course he had the same machine gun as he was we did 30 caliber and these germans kept coming like japanese kamigaze troops or something and we just sprayed them and then they'd jump up and run and we'd spray them again they'd jump up and run and we'd spray them again they were some of hitler's very best ss troopers and uh Ario and i happened to go back oh it was at least 50 years later to the same area and uh he got one of the villagers there and said you know after the war, when you or after the battle was over and, and the Germans were gone, and uh, he went up on that field to get the bodies, he said, how many f- bodies did you find? The guy said, 125. And it's just hard to believe that you would sit there and shoot 125 people. But it's the way it went. And I think uh, getting back to, to officers, I think that was a good deal of the inspiration too. You know, they... They could tell you, okay, fellas, come on, we've, <clears throat> we've done it before, we're going to do it again, let's go. You know, and that, you got to have somebody leading you that way. We had good sergeants, too. Uh, a lot of them got field commissions. My uh, third tank commander uh, <clears throat> got a field commission. Fortunately, unfortunately, uh, the day that they came up to give him his field commission, uh, he jumped out of the tank and a, and a mortar shell went off and fractured his leg, so he never came back to combat again. So uh, I guess he got his officer's rating, but uh, there, were, there were some really good sergeants. 
our history tells you that with uh, Lafayette Poole and some others that were real go-getters. And one of my lieutenants uh, was Clifford Elliott. And a lot's been written about Clifford Elliott. He was a really good tank commander, platoon commander. They were smart and they uh, figured things out quickly. And, uh, and they could see what their advantage would be in a particular situation. And, uh, and they were willing to take the advantage and sometimes take the risk uh, in order to get the advantage. And, uh, and they build a reputation, you know, and then people are willing to, to listen to what they had to say and to, and to follow them. And they, well, what's that old saying? They just showed by example. After I got wounded the second time and came back to the company, the first sergeant came up and said, Walter, I'm going to send you up again, but this time I want you to be a tank commander. And I said, I don't want to be a tank commander. He said, well, why not? I said, you'll be a sergeant right away. And I said, I've been through five tank commanders. I said, I want to stay inside the tank. I'll be the gunner. And uh, okay, that's the way you want it. But then, I, as I said before, I never did get back into a tank after that. But uh, the fellow who took my place as a gunner and the guy who took my place as a tank commander were killed the next day. We had a fellow that came in, had arthritis real bad. He was older. He had, you know, some draft boards didn't have enough young men, so they drafted older people. And this man was uh, in his early 30s, married, had several children. But whenever he got a chance, he was a bow gunner. He would stand up, open his hatch and stand up because his arthritic knees bothered him so bad. And uh, his tank got hit, and he got both legs cut off, you know, just like that. Oh, just, those are sad, you know, when you see those. And one of my uh, worst memories was going to an aid station and seeing a young man lying there alongside the path up to the house who was obviously dying. And keep, he would keep looking up at you and like he was trying to talk, but he couldn't say anything. And you knew that, you know, there wasn't a thing you could do for him, that he was just, he was going to be another statistic. Those are the hard ones. You can't give enough credit to the medics that we had. They were really brave men. They had no gun or anything else. And uh, somebody shot, so you know that that he's going to be exposed to the same thing that, that the person who's wounded was. Uh, <clears throat> the Germans weren't all that good about sparing uh people with a red cross on their helmet either. I think sometimes they used them for targets. Uh, they had a tough job. And uh, we gave an awful lot of credit and still do. That was a running argument with the infantry. They'd always come up and say, boy, it must be nice, you know, to be up there and that's all that steel around you, you know, and I'm out here in a wide open spaces. And then we'd always say, well, would you like to be eight foot taller to be a target? And they, oh, no, I didn't think they'd like that either. But we went back and forth, and we took care of each other. You know, they, uh, there was never any argument between the infantry or the tanks. I never thought I wanted to be an infantryman. No, that uh, they were exposed all the time. Uh, their life expectancy was very short. As Belden Cooper pointed out, uh, Patton uh, had some say in what happened with our tanks and how they were constructed and what we were looking for. And his philosophy was the tanks didn't fight tanks. The tanks, you know, were uh, to do something for the infantry to help them out. Uh, it didn't work out that way. But the infantry was was essential for the tanks. We never wanted to get out and try to fight by ourselves because the Germans were good fighters. They'd, they'd uh, get their 
their Panzerfaust, their bazookas, and just lay there and wait till you came by and shoot you from the side and get you in a hurry. Um, the uh, infantry was good. The reconnaissance troops were good about spotting uh, German tank positions, that sort of thing. Uh, if they spotted one, then they'd call us and we'd come up and, and start banging away to, to get rid of the, of the uh, German tanks or whatever it was they were having difficulty with. Uh, once we got that air superiority, that from then on it was great because you could uh, call the Air Force and say, you know, we got a tank out here if the weather was good, <clears throat> and they would come out and, and bomb it or strafe it or whatever was necessary. They were a big help to us that way. You can't tell. Distances and one thing and another are very deceiving. And one day our tank was sitting at the edge of a woods, and we'd been firing at this house, and, uh, and they'd call for an airplane to come in and drop a bomb on it. And when he came in, he came back this way, aiming towards our tank. And it looked to me, you know, as I say, the distance is, is, is deceiving. It looked to me like he was going to strafe our tank. So I jumped out, and we had these identification panels, and I stood on the tank and waved the identification panel. But he was bombing the house way out in front of us. It just looked bad. But that was a big help. Um, and uh, in cold weather, as a side effect, we had a big exhaust that blew out all this warm air so the infantry could get behind and warm their hands. And, and uh, uh, we, we gave them food or water or anything like that if it got to the case where they needed it. And uh, sometimes they took it where they needed it or not. We one time had a case of rations on the back of the tank. Uh, and when the day's combat was over and we jumped out and looked, it was long gone. And some uh, infantryman had himself a whole big box of food. <laughs> but uh, we had good infantry. They were good fighters. I think we had a real uh, esprit de corps in the 3rd Armored Division. We were proud of what we did. Uh, we prided ourselves on being good fighters and hanging in there. Uh, I read an article that a German had translated about one of our battles, and uh, I happened to be in the one he was talking about. And he said they hit these tanks and the and the uh, crews bailed out. My uh, platoon was going up the row of houses. There were two rows of houses and a road in the middle, and we were going up the row between the houses, and another platoon was going up the outside of these in a field. And we didn't realize it, but the Germans were dug in over here on this side. And they hit the first tank and the last tank and knocked them out. And these two in the middle were stuck. And they knew it was coming, so the crew just bailed out. I mean, there's no sense in staying there and getting killed. And so this German wrote and said, you know, uh, we hit a couple of them, and the rest of them just bailed out and ran. And uh, the fellow that sent me this, I said, right back and tell that German officer that uh, he didn't tell the rest of the story, that we were right back again the next day with more tanks <laughs> And the same crews in a new tank, and we went right back where we were before, because that's exactly what we did. And they, uh, I think the third just had that kind of a of a esprit de corps among them. They were we were just proud of what we did, and determined to get the job done. And as as you can see, it's stayed with us all these years. I mean, the, uh, there's been a real camaraderie uh, among us. Well, you were, you were depending on each other. You know, if I got wounded, I was depending on somebody to get a hold of me and drag me out of where I was and get help for me. And, uh, and we talked among ourselves. We never left anybody behind, you know, if it was, if, unless they were dead. If they were wounded, we were going to help them get out. You know, and you, it was just built into you that uh, somebody was going to do it for you and you were going to do it for them. You 
know, and we try to take care of each other that way. And, uh, and that builds a real bond and uh, stays with you and has all these years. When I first started going to 3rd Armored Division reunions, there were quite a few guys from my company. And, oh, we really enjoyed each other's company. But they've all pretty much died off. I think there's only six of us left now. And uh, some in California and a couple in Illinois. Uh, but they're not able to travel. So I'm, as far as my company is concerned, I'm the only one that comes to these reunions. But then over the years, I've met other people and I delight in their company. And so I keep coming. That was Private First Class Walter Stitt. Thanks for listening to Warriors in Their Own Words. If you have any feedback, please email the team at kharbaugh at evergreenpodcast.com. We're always looking to improve the show. And if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate and review. Warriors in Their Own Words is a production of Evergreen Podcasts in partnership with The Honor Project. Our producer is Declan Roars. Bridget Coyne is our production director, and Sean Rulhoffman is our audio engineer. Special thanks to Evergreen executive producers Joan Andrews, Michael DeAloya, and David Moss. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Warriors in Their Own Words. The Battle of Waterloo was one of the most famous turning points in world history. But what happened next? My name's David Montgomery, and I'm the host of The Siecla a history podcast that tackles exactly that. Join me as I cover France's overlooked century in between Napoleon and World War I. The Siècle, spelled S-I-E-C-L-E, is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and can be found wherever you get podcasts.